are listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC on the campus of African Bible University. I'm Jeremiah Pitts, a professor and administrator here at African Bible University in Uganda. The purpose of the Vice Chancellor's Hour is to provide biblical and theological teachings that are an extension of the ministry here at the university. We have another episode of B-List Bible Characters. We're continuing on the person of Jonathan, that close friend of David. I'm sure everyone knows David. B-List Bible Characters are episodes which cover characters that are not usually thought of as the main character of their own story. And because of that, we lose a lot of the details that make them truly important and significant to us, and I think some lessons along the way as well. Today's episode is going to include some biblical violence, as uh, some of these episodes sometimes do. Please don't be disturbed by that. If you are, something's going on in your life, you may want to pause and wait and come back some other time to listen to this episode. If you're normally a radio listener, which I think a lot of you are, you can also catch this on vchour.buzzsprout.com. You can catch this and any other episode at that label at any time. Well, we're looking at Jonathan. What we found out about him was mostly about his interaction with his father, Saul, who is the king of Israel. Jonathan is a good man. He's a man of deep faith. He's a leader. He inspires courage. He takes initiative. He trusts the Lord, and he's willing to fight in battle. And we left him. He had been accused of wrongdoing, and he actually hadn't done anything wrong. It was his father, Saul, who was doing the wrong thing. Nevertheless, he was under a death sentence, and had he not been a leader that had encouraged faithfulness and inspired confidence in his people, his father certainly would have killed him. But the people themselves rose up to protect Jonathan against his own father. Can you imagine what an unbelievable reversal of fortunes that is? The passage we begin with today is 1 Samuel chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, I would ask you to turn to them. Of course, if you're driving along the road, please wait uh, and look up this passage later, and you can hear for yourself a little bit about it here. We don't quote it all word for word because of time, but I do encourage you to read the Bible for yourself. The Bible is the rule, not this show, certainly not me. Read the Bible and see what it has to say. Feel free to test what I'm telling you against what Scripture says. When two talented and popular people meet each other, we almost expect that they won't get along. There seems like there should be some sense of rivalry between them. But Jonathan isn't that kind of guy. When we see Jonathan up close again, he's made a friend that he admires precisely because this friend is exactly like him. Just like Jonathan stood up against overwhelming odds, he sees David do the exact same thing. And as Jonathan believed that he would win if the Lord was in it, David rested in the Lord's ability to win the battle for him as well. Jonathan was very skilled. He could fight very well in one-on-one combat, and David clearly was skilled as a warrior as well. And Jonathan didn't make things easy on himself with his strategy. He sort of chose the hardest way to win to prove it was the Lord's battle. And David went to war against a skilled opponent by the name of Goliath with just a sling and some stones. They even liked the same insults, if you could imagine. Both of them referred to the Philistines as uncircumcised. You may remember this from previous episode, that this is an insult 
that is telling them that they're unclean, but also has some religious overtones to it as well, that they're not the people of God. So after David defeated Goliath, he's a young man and he's basically unknown. Most people don't even know who he is. And Saul is trying to figure out who is this guy. And so Saul calls David to himself and asks David to explain who he is. And Jonathan saw the whole thing. Jonathan sees David speak to Saul, and he sees in David a young man who is very much like himself, had done some of the same things that he had done and trusted in the same God that he trusted in and was skilled like he was skilled. And instead of having a sense of competition or insecurity, the Bible tells us he loved him for it. We can't know exactly what Jonathan knew at that very moment, but later he assures David that Saul tells him everything. He doesn't do anything without telling him. So it seems that Jonathan would have to have known that Saul had been told by Samuel the prophet two very important things that intersect with Jonathan's life. The first thing we mentioned in last week's episode, that the throne of Israel would not pass to Saul's children. That is, Jonathan, we are told by a prophet, would never be king. And we think Jonathan probably knew that. It's likely Saul had mentioned it to him. But not mentioned in last week's episode is the fact that Saul had disobeyed the command of God again. And this time, Samuel the prophet had told Saul that God was picking someone else to be king more or less right away. Jonathan must have had some idea that David was special compared to everyone else because he gave David his own robe. That was a sign of being in the royal family. This royal gift given to this young man, David, whom he had just met, though he had seen him do something unbelievable. He went further. He actually gave David his own weapons and his own armor. So David possessed the best weapons and armor of the Philistines by killing Goliath, and he does it by force. But David was given some of the best clothes, the best weapons and the armor of Israel, not out of fighting, but out of love and admiration. Jonathan's heart was for David, just as God's heart was for David. And this is some indication that Jonathan's inclination, the direction Jonathan was pointing, is the same direction that God himself was pointing, and that's in David's favor. Now, I have to say, this is not possible in a world of envy and strife. You know, Saul reacts consistently with envy towards David. He tries to kill him personally on multiple occasions while David is with him in court doing literally nothing wrong and in some ways actually trying to help Saul out. All of this is out of jealousy and self-interest, which is just what James describes later in the Bible happens as a cause of disorder and all evil things. And so I do think this is an example to us of a man, Jonathan, who saw another good young man and only wanted good for him as well. He gave him the best. He made a covenant with him, we're told, and this is a life and death bond between two people. Jonathan saw the best of himself in another man, 
who also had the blessing of the Lord in his life. This is an encouragement to us, I think, that we ought to consider others first, that we should not be so attached to our own advancement, to us being put forward, even as the whole world tells us that we deserve you know, whatever it is. This is against human nature. Human nature is for us to put ourselves first, but it is a work of the Spirit that we consider others before we consider ourselves. What a world it would be, from top to bottom, different, if the people in it acted as Christians ought to act, loving each other, serving each other, and putting each other first, just as Jonathan puts David ahead of himself. We find out later in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 4 through 7, that Saul was not satisfied with trying to kill David himself, although he makes several attempts on David's life himself. Can you imagine you're sitting at a dinner table or at a small gathering, and the king himself throws his spear at you to kill him? That's unbelievable. Was it first an individual challenge to kill David out of a fit of anger and of rage had become a thing he tried to do instead by stealth, by including traps for David, putting him up against people against all possible odds by trying to marry him to someone who he never really had any business being married to. She was not a good woman. Saul began to lose control of himself and because of that began to lose control of the situation And so he openly tells members of his own family and his staff to kill David. It's not a secret intent any longer. I ask you, a man as powerful as a king, who could stand against a king? Especially a king who had tried to kill this man before and had tried to kill other good men. Well, Jonathan stands against the order of his own father, the king. Even though Saul at one other time had decided to put him to death and had failed to do so, And he does it because Saul was ordering him to do something immoral. He was ordering him to do something that was wrong. It was evil. In fact, Jonathan knew the law, and he loved David. The law to not commit murder suggests the preciousness of innocent human life and requires the protection of it whenever we are able. Jonathan is not satisfied with ignoring the order himself, but he goes even further and actively defends David's life. He shows us that not doing evil is not enough. We must also do what is good in its place. So Jonathan then speaks out. He intercedes on behalf of David at great personal risk. This man, Saul, his father, though he was his father, was both powerful and had threatened to kill Jonathan in the past. But Jonathan speaks up not to save his own life or to save the life of a member of his family, but to save the life of an innocent man, David, even though the whole world would tell him that David is his greatest rival. Nevertheless, Jonathan is David's biggest advocate. He tells the truth about David. He tells the truth about David to Saul's face even though Saul is more powerful than he is and a murderous man. Saul swears as a result of Jonathan's intervention to save David's life. But David went out to war for Saul and for the people of Israel. And because God gave David the victory, Saul's response wasn't love, and it certainly wasn't to keep 
his command or his covenant, but instead Saul hated David more than he had ever hated him before and tried to kill him harder than he had ever tried to kill him before as well. This is a man, Saul, who only seems to do what's wrong in this part of his life. This is contrasted with his son, who is such a better man. Jonathan shines when you compare him to his father, and it makes you wonder, how does a guy like Saul have a son who's as good as Jonathan? The answer has to be the grace of God shown in Jonathan's life, that it is God himself who's working in Jonathan. Otherwise, there's no good reason why Jonathan does what's right. And Saul provides such a terrible example. In 1 Samuel 20, we see that the pathway of David's life is getting more and more problematic, but Jonathan is not willing to give up on him. David has fled. He's afraid of Saul. He's very sure that Saul wants to kill him. And of course, we know for sure that David is right. Who do you turn to in a time like that? When your life is literally on the line, where the most powerful person in the country wants you dead, you're not sure about the people around you and alliances, what do you do? Who do you turn to? It would have to be someone you really trusted, who knew had your back. You knew it would be faithful to you, and David turns to Jonathan when his life is on the line. Imagine being so sure of the integrity of a person that you're willing to ask them to help you even though you're trying to take their throne against the desires of their father, the king. I say there you're trying to take the throne, but in in actuality, that's not David's intention. The throne had been given to him by God, but nevertheless, that's how everyone else thought of it. They seemed to mostly think that David was there to take Saul's throne, but not Jonathan. Jonathan, you see, saw it as an act of God and one that he would be a fool to resist because from the moment he saw David, he knew that the Lord was with David. Jonathan was discerning of these things. He discerned how the Lord was working in ways that his father Saul could never see. And because of that, Jonathan acts faithfully because he loves the Lord and because of his love for the Lord, he also loves David. And because of that, David trusts Jonathan because he was a man of obvious and consistent integrity. He was trustworthy because he was a sincere man of God. Not that David is completely sure. You'll kind of see this moments later about his questions. I mean, Jonathan is, after all, a human being. But Jonathan testifies in that moment and proves that the trust that David puts in him is very well-placed. David knows his own intentions towards Saul and the kingdom are good, but his life is in jeopardy anyway. Jonathan assures him that he knows everything Saul knows, and he hasn't heard anything else about him being killed. Saul's trying to kill David, and David is wise to it as he often is. Jonathan, we're told there, cuts a covenant. That's the old term. You may have heard me use this on other episodes. Jonathan cuts a covenant. That's the old term. They used to actually split animals in half. It's a way of suggesting that that would be what would be done to them if they broke the covenant. And David himself affirms his covenant as well. This covenant, we're told, is a sacred covenant. That is, they covenant together before the Lord. The Lord himself 
instituted and was thereby witnessing and enforcing the terms of the covenant itself. And what was to be done in this covenant? Jonathan is promising to warn and to protect David and to protect his life. David, for his part, is to protect especially the offspring of Jonathan, Jonathan's offspring, those who come from Jonathan. Jonathan does ask, and this turns out to be sort of prophetic in a way, he asks that if he's still alive, that his life would be protected as well. It seems Jonathan suspects that if the throne in no way passes to him, there's a good chance it's because he's not around to accept it. And then they call on God to cut off David's enemies from the earth. That is, think of the amazing aspect of this. Jonathan calls on the Lord himself to destroy David's enemies. That is, the person whom the whole world views as his rival, Jonathan wants those enemies cut off. He feels safe saying that because Jonathan knows he's not one of David's enemies. Whatever other people may think of him, he actually only has David's best interest in mind. And not only that, Jonathan has a global perspective of David and David's heirs. Now think what this kind of claim, or shall I say request, is really saying. What Jonathan is really saying is that the Lord himself will make sure there's no more people on earth who can succeed against David or his heirs. And who is David's greatest heir but Christ himself? who dies for his enemies to make him their friend, and in turn also subdues the whole earth underneath a rod of iron, as David himself would say in his psalm. David would rather that Jonathan kill him than be handed over to Saul, but Jonathan swears that he has nothing to do with wanting David to be dead and that David, in fact, has done nothing wrong. But instead, they agree to create a type of trick to determine what Saul's disposition might be. Now, I will say here that Jonathan is going to be required to tell something that is conventionally known as the word a lie. That is, he's going to say something that on its face does not seem to be true. And that is when David goes to the New Moon Festival, one day of which is a sacred day where only those who are ritualistically purified could eat, his absence would be noted by Saul. And the reaction when he asks why David is not there will tell everyone what they need to know. He's supposed to ask why David's not there. Jonathan is supposed to say he has urgent business in Bethlehem and he begged to be able to leave. Now, I say conventionally people think of it as a lie because it clearly is a ruse. And yet, in this, it is possible that David is thinking of his request to go to Bethlehem as the thing that he's saying right then. And while it's only to avoid being killed, well, perhaps it's a bit more complicated than just a straightforward lie. Nevertheless, I'll say this. There is biblical precedent for the fact that saving innocent lives justifies even saying something that's not true. We see this with the Egyptian midwives. We see it again with Rahab the harlot, where in each case, they clearly are blessed as a direct result of them attempting to save innocent lives and being willing even to say something that's not true. And it seems we gather from this that protecting innocent life is valuable enough that even saying something that's not true 
is justified in that case. You have a similar act in the act of self-defense. Normally, killing another person is a punishable crime, punishable, in fact, by death. And yet, if you are killing to protect innocent life, that taking of a life is justified. The thing that normally is wrong actually becomes what's right. And praise God, we will, in the kingdom to come, never have to protect innocent life in that way because the Lord himself values innocent life. But in this world that's complicated, we find that the Lord prizes the preservation of innocent life even over other things that normally would be wrong to do. So Jonathan follows the plan, and Saul is unhappy. Jonathan lets Saul know that the reason David isn't there is because he begged off to go to Bethlehem to take care of some problems. Saul doesn't believe him. You know, Saul could understand if David wasn't there the first day because he might be unclean. He says as much himself because you could only be clean and eat on that day. But the next day, anybody could eat even if they weren't clean and David still wasn't there. Saul's response is nasty. I mean, it's vile. It's terrible for a father. He insults Jonathan. He goes on to insult Jonathan's mother as well. And notice in that passage, he doesn't think of Jonathan as his own son, but the son of his wife instead. So he distanced himself. Calls into question the integrity of Jonathan's mother, insulting Jonathan by doing so. Says that David is robbing Jonathan of Jonathan's kingdom by his action and by not helping Saul, he's in fact helping David, basically calling him weak, calling him an idiot, and calling him a collaborator. And then he finally demands that Jonathan arrest and have David killed at his command. He's used all the tools in his tool belt. He's tried to shame Jonathan, he's tried to guilt Jonathan, and he's appealed to Jonathan's greed. But none of it changes Jonathan's mind. That's incredible pressure placed on you by the most powerful man in your circle who also happens to be your father. But you see, Jonathan is unusual. He's unusual not just for that day and age, but he's unusual for this one. Jonathan took an oath. He swore a covenant before the Lord. And in his view, he swore it to his own hurt. That is, what his father is saying can be true. That in fact, David is going to take Jonathan's throne in some sense. And on paper, that is exactly what it looks like. But Jonathan made a covenant with David, and David is an innocent man. And Jonathan swore this oath, and he wouldn't change. You can see this type of thing encouraged in all of us in Psalm 15, 4. So Jonathan turns the tables on his father. You see, Saul's job is to uphold what is good and to discourage what is evil. It's really, in a sense, that simple. That's the job of a ruler, encourage what is good and to discourage what is evil. And Saul has said that David needs to be killed. So Jonathan demands, if we are to put David's life out, that is, if we are to apply capital punishment to David, there must be a correct charge levied against him for a capital offense. And so he demands to know what wrong has David done that merits that he be killed. Saul, predictably, reacts murderously to Jonathan's query. He tries to kill him, and in fact, ironically, hurling a spear at him, he tries to kill him in exactly the same way 
that Saul had earlier tried to kill David. Jonathan's angry. His father misses. You have to wonder why he misses. Is he too drunk? Is he too angry? Is he not so good with the spear anymore? We don't know. We know Jonathan leaves, and when he leaves, he leaves to fast, that is, he doesn't eat, and to grieve because he sees a giant rift between them, that there is something irreconcilable in his relationship with his father that's also going to cause some distance between him and his close friend and innocent man, David, the man that the Lord himself had chosen. Jonathan follows through with the plan. The plan was for him to go out to a particular place where Jonathan would throw out three arrows with his bow, and he would send a young boy to go fetch them. And the signal would be that if he told the boy to keep going and to keep going, that was the signal to David it was time to run away. And in fact, Jonathan does exactly that. The boy, it seems from the passage, is a bit confused about what Jonathan's doing because he has the arrows. But Jonathan doesn't just tell him to keep going, but he actually tells him to go with some great speed and kind of right away. That's more or less what the Hebrew tells us. The boy instead, clearly confused, returns back and in fact goes all the way back to where he came from. This leaves Jonathan disarmed. And this is kind of interesting because I think what's going on is David is seeing the signal from afar and he's hoping he can trust Jonathan that Jonathan hasn't been persuaded otherwise. Jonathan, for his part, is faithful to David and is willing to meet David the man who has been placed by God to take his throne, and he's willing to meet with him disarmed because he loves him and he trusts him. And David, seeing Jonathan disarmed and alone, comes out to meet him. The two of them say goodbyes. They say farewell. They did it in the way that people of that era often did when it was going to be a long goodbye, which is they kissed each other on the cheeks. Jonathan clearly knows that this is probably an important parting, a long-term parting. Jonathan has a place in the court, and he normally can't just roam around doing whatever he wants to do. He's too important for that. That's why they had to make this whole ruse of shooting arrows in a field. Jonathan's life is important to his people, to his dynasty, and in some sense to the throne itself, at least by a normal extension. And so it won't be that he can just regularly go out and encounter a David who clearly is about to be on a prolonged run for his life. And so as they part, they tell each other to go in peace. That phrase throughout the Bible indicates a long parting, a parting that is not a short one. They don't intend to see each other very soon thereafter. And of course, that's precisely what happens. We find David on the run constantly, moving from place to place, going out. He has spies looking out for him, just as Saul has spies He runs from location to location, moving quickly. He goes to places there are no people. He finds places where there is some protection from attack and from surprise. He bounces all over the place. It's not a good life. It's not an easy life. This is a tough section of David's life. And if you're looking from outside in and you don't know how the rest of the story goes, just as Jonathan is looking from the outside in and he doesn't know how the story is going to go, it doesn't look good for David. And in fact, some of the indications are David doesn't always think it looks good for him either. And a critical moment happens. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 23. I think it's the last time that Jonathan and David ever meet. It's hard. It's a bit emotional, honestly. It doesn't go the way, you know, a movie might tell it. It's gritty. It's like real life. 
Saul has been hunting David down to kill him all over these places. David's been running for his life. He's fled, in fact, with a small force of his family, including the elderly and children. He has a small force of, like, outcasts as well who are along with him. They're scrounging. They're doing the best they can to make it. If you want to hear more about this, you might go back and listen to the very first episode of B-List Bible Characters. We hear about Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Well, David is hiding in a town called Horesh in a desert. Don't know a lot about it. It must have been a real out-of-the-way place. Saul discovers that he's there, but Jonathan discovers he's there as well. So there's a race on. Saul racing to go kill him with the military. Jonathan racing with completely different intent. We're told in this passage that Jonathan wants to strengthen him in the Lord. And what that means is that Jonathan came to him in that critical life and death moment to remind him of his faith, to remind him of the Lord, the work that the Lord had done in the past, that the God that had delivered Jonathan from the Philistines and given him a great victory is the same Lord that had given David triumph over Goliath and many, many other Philistines throughout his life as well. That this Lord is to be trusted because this Lord had spared Jonathan's life and would spare David's life as well. And Jonathan believes that David will rule, that he'll have a throne. And Jonathan sees himself alongside a reigning David. That is, he is no rival to him, but he is a friend and a support to him. And that Jonathan encourages David to have faith in the Lord. It goes on to say that Jonathan renewed his covenant. That's it. He's saying everything I told you before is true. I told you that day when we were in the field with the arrows, everything I knew about Saul's plan for your life and death. And I'm here now to tell you the same thing. And what's suggested in this renewing of the covenant is that the terms of the covenant are still true. He'll protect David, and what he wants in return is for David, if Jonathan is still alive, to protect him, but more importantly, to protect Jonathan's offspring. Jonathan, we're told, leaves. He's in no position to take sides militarily with David against his own father. There's, there's just something wrong about that, to fight physically against your own father in this kind of case. It seems he certainly wasn't welcome in his father's camp either, was going to take no part in that, and probably wasn't welcome. Saul would rather have Abner along. Abner's more than happy to kill whoever Saul points him towards. Jonathan argues with his father every time his father tries to do something wrong with David. Jonathan rises up and fights with him, argues with him, asks him to prove it, asks for the proof, asks for the receipts, as they say. Well, unfortunately... Much of the rest of the story is really about Saul trying to kill David and David grasping, trying to stay alive. But eventually the reign of Saul comes to an end and Jonathan is caught up in it. 1 Samuel chapter 31 tells us that Saul uh, comes to a war with the Philistines as has often happened in times past. In fact, the Philistines have come and have surrounded him. In that moment, as I've mentioned in previous episodes, David actually tries to make a move to turn on the Philistines. I'm firmly convinced that when he offers his help to the Philistines, he actually intends to flip on them and to attack them from the rear. In fact, I'm not the only one who thinks that. The Philistines themselves were concerned that's what David was doing, and all of the outward signs and everything we know about David indicates that's probably what he was going to do. The Philistines, in a sense, were too wise for him, and they send him away. And so left on his own... Saul is surrounded, he's overwhelmed, and eventually he gets struck down by archers. 
rather than be killed in the horrific fashion as what happened in the ancient Near East. That is, he would have had his members cut off while he was still alive, and he would have been disemboweled probably, but definitely decapitated. He chooses instead that he will not suffer that shame and torture, but would rather commit suicide. He tries to have someone else do it for him, and that person fails and kills himself instead. What we know for sure is that Saul's son die, and that includes Jonathan. They all fall at the hands of the Philistines who were too much for them. Unfortunately, their bodies were treated as bodies back then often were. That is, they were stripped of their clothes and of their armor, and they were pinned to a wall in what had been at one time a sort of Israelite territory. The point of this was clear. You're trying to shame them. You're trying to terrify the Israelite people. And I have to say that's a terrifying prospect to see these people, especially to see a mighty warrior like Jonathan naked, pinned to a wall, and dead. The men of Jabeth-Gilead risk life and limb not to rescue live men, but to rescue their bodies. And they want to do it for a type of proper burial. They could have died doing this, but they did it anyway. They take those remains down. They put them through a process of burning their flesh. They take their bones and they transport them. They take a religious fast and they bury them under a tamarisk tree. Now, you may ask yourself, why a tamarisk tree? I think there's two reasons for that. One is that we find that the tamarisk tree in the scriptures is a sign of a God of eternal provision, a God who keeps going and going and going. Abraham himself uses that term for God and then plants a tamarisk tree. This tamarisk tree provides green resources for people and for animals. Wherever it goes, it seems like it's perpetual. And it's also the tree that Saul himself had chosen as a place where he held court. A sort of symbol of Saul is this great tamarisk tree. And while they were not in the promised land, they weren't buried in the promised land, they were buried under a tamarisk tree as a symbol of a God who is alive and who never fails, but also a symbol of Saul's reign. Jonathan had inspired so much love and so much respect that when David and David's men find out from an Amalekite that Saul and Jonathan had died, the men tore their clothes and they wept. They didn't just weep for Saul, but by name they wept for Jonathan. You see, David's own men didn't want Jonathan dead. They wanted Jonathan alive. Can you imagine having such a good reputation that men who are surrounding the man who is to take your throne nevertheless love you and want what's good for you? David goes on to remember Jonathan and his psalm. These are the words that are spoken of him, that he is strong, that he's swift. And just as we saw in Jonathan's life, he was a weapon of war. He's a bow that never turned back, but he found his target. He was a man who loved David and his love without peer and without equal. He always made good on his covenant. David remembers. He remembers what a good man Jonathan was, and he remembers his own covenant with Jonathan. Maybe the best thing Jonathan did in one way was this covenant he made with David because it went on to pay off year after year and generation after generation for much to come. You see, David doesn't forget Jonathan, and because of that, he doesn't forget his covenant with Jonathan. Jonathan hadn't just made a promise about his own health. You remember, he asked for the health of his own children. And so while most of Jonathan's children had died, 
There was one child left, a guy often called Mephibosheth. David secures the life of Mephibosheth, even though Mephibosheth is crippled. That is, in his day, he would not have been held in high esteem, and many people would not have looked up to him. David, nevertheless, puts him at a seat of honor, at his own table, even with with his crippled legs. What's more is he gives Mephibosheth his father's lands and an esteemed position, and he goes on to protect him many times thereafter. In fact, there's a time in 2 Samuel 21 where David becomes aware that a famine has taken place because of a great injustice. He seeks out the will of the Lord. The Lord indicates to him that it's because of something Saul had done to the Gibeonites. They had been promised protection, but Saul slaughtered them, and he never should have done that. He asked the Gibeonites how things should be besettled between them, and they say that they want seven sons of Saul's house. This is a sort of lex talionis, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This family had attacked them. And in return, they wanted to have the scores settled. David could have said anyone. And in fact, he does send seven of Saul's sons, some of them the children of concubines, some of them from one of his daughters, in fact, Saul's grandsons. But David spares Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, precisely because Mephibosheth is a child of promise. And what's more, David goes on to return, out of respect, Saul's family bones From underneath those tamarisk tree comes Jonathan back to the promised land. What's broken has been restored. And how did this restoration take place? It took place because a covenant that Jonathan had made before the Lord, a covenant, this bond in blood, that David keeps whole, though the family of Saul were not a whole people. I see in this a type of grace for us, and I want to leave you with this encouragement. The Lord works with us by covenant, and we're not perfect people. Praise be to God, our perfect God shows grace to imperfect people like us, and he makes us whole again. That he loves us, though we're unlovely. That he keeps us, even though we ourselves are broken. He restores us and sets us at a table because of the covenant he made before us and on our behalf with the blessed son. I hope you've been encouraged by the story of Jonathan. He's one of my favorite people in the whole Bible. You're not going to find many people as good, as consistently good as him. And may he be a source of encouragement to each of us that the Lord sees us And though Jonathan, because of the failures of his father, died a hard death, I have no doubt that he was greeted in the kingdom to come with these words of our Lord, Well done, my good and faithful servant. May we also live lives by which we can be greeted with those words. Thanks be to God. You've been listening to the Vice Chancellor's Hour, a ministry of Radio ABC on the campus of African Bible University. We hope this has been beneficial to your Christian walk and understanding. If it has, you can support the ministry of Radio ABC by going to AfricanBibleColleges.com and clicking on the Donate button. 
don't forget to let them know in the comments that it's going to the Uganda station. If you have questions about anything in this or previous episodes, please write us at radioabc993fm at gmail.com. That's radioabc993fm at gmail.com. And we'll answer your question on a questions and answer episode. Until next time, may the peace of God and the fellowship of God's people encourage your hearts.